Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 146. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 146 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Rene Coronado, who's an engineer over at Dallas Audio Post and has been there since 1999 doing audio post and mixing, sound design, field recording, voice production. Uh, he builds and releases sound effects libraries uh, at echocollectiveeffects.com. Check that out. I'll put that in the show notes. He's also the co-host of Tone Benders, which is a podcast you should check out along with Tim Muirhead. So happy to have Renee on board with me today. We did this interview as I was in France at Mix with the Masters, and uh, it was a little bit of a challenge to do the interview because the first night we attempted it, there was a wasp flying in my room. And I had to keep looking over my shoulder to see where the wasp was. So I finally just said, hey, man, let's pick this up tomorrow night. Let me take care of this wasp issue and... Uh, so that's what we did. So yeah, two wasps later, and now an interview, we we have what we need. So yeah, Renee Coronado coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So yeah, I'm back from France. Let me give you the rundown. Uh, first of all, there's a lot that I have to catch up on. I'm well aware, and some of you who follow some of the stuff I'm doing with the video diaries, I was doing video diaries the entire time I was there, and I wasn't posting them because here's the thing. France, I love you, but oh my God, you've got to get better internet. The internet was awful, truly awful. So I, I gave up. I said, you know what? I'm going to capture it all. And when I get back to the Bay Area, that's when I'll upload it all because uh, it, it just was painful. That aside, I know first world problems. It was a fantastic time. Chad was an amazing person to go see. Uh, I respected him before I got there, and I have even more respect for him now. Uh, as I may have mentioned, I can't even remember what I've mentioned at this point. So much jet lag has taken place. Yeah, I'm, the jet lag, I'm just so vulnerable to it. It really kicks my ass. But, you know, Chad and I were always the first two up in the morning, so inevitably I would, you know, sit and have breakfast with him. And, you know, we'd talk about kids and the headlines of the day and just, you know, current events and stuff like that. And, you know, you just, you get to kind of get past that point of, uh, you know, one of your idols, right? And then you get to that point where this is just a person and this person you really like as a person. You think, wow, you know, I could hang out with this guy and I'm hanging out with him. So we had a good time doing that. And then, of course, the time spent in the studio, you know, I learned a great deal and I think that my last episode, episode 145, with all my 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 new brothers from Mixed with the Masters, who I have nothing but great things to say about. I really, really feel like I, I formed a bond with a, a lot with all of these guys, all 16 of these guys. And I think uh, uh, I hope to stay in touch with all of them as the years go by. But the time spent doing stuff in the studio and hanging out with uh, all the the attendees that was just i mean i can't tell you how much i learned and and as, as i was about to say in previous episode 145 all, all of the attendees really kind of summed it up you know in all of their comments what the philosophical bigger picture idea that they learned from chad so 
you know, I'm super happy I went. I know it was a chunk of dough, and I think that money was well spent. I got to be honest with you. Uh, at one point, I said, you know, just to be pragmatic, I thought, you know, was was that a good idea? And, you know, after I got done with it, I was like, that was a fantastic idea. I need to do it again. <laughs> but I don't think I'll be doing it again for a while because it, it is, like I said, it's a chunk of dough. And it's a chunk of time away from the family, and I was very fortunate to have my in-laws come out and help my wife out with the kids. And man, I tell you, leave your in-laws at your house for, uh, you know, 10 days or so, shit gets done, I'm telling you. You know, all, this, all the doors in the house that were sticking, my father-in-law took all the doors off and he planed them, you know. Planed them so that, you know, he cut, you know, cut the edge off and made it so they all work and replaced all the doorknobs. Doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I'm telling you. Yeah, let's have some coffee. Mm. So I'll just sum it up and say, yeah, uh, it was a great time. I learned a ton. Uh, France's internet needs help. And uh, I don't know if it was just in the south of France, but when I was at my hotel in Avignon, it was just, it was awful. I mean, it was terrible internet. So, all right, I'll quit bitching. Um, so anyways, I got stuff to do. I got I to gotta upload all these videos so you could see that and kind of go back in time to that and definitely plan on going back to do full-on interviews with the the guys that I met there. N not everybody was a recording professional as would be here on Working Class Audio, but uh, many of them would be ideal candidates to be on the show. So there it is. Uh, let's see, where are we at? So we're, we're in October, right? And uh, we're heading towards January, of course, in a few months. Winter Nam, I'll be there. Uh, i got to buy my ticket. You should buy your ticket, too. If you're planning on going and you have a connection to get a ticket, remember, it's not open to the public. So you got to go through a manufacturer. you got to have some kind of connection. And so I'll be there. And uh, I encourage you to start looking for ticket prices now if you're coming from a far, far away point. I, of course, am only going for about an hour and a half on a plane, so I'm not really that worried about it. But anyhow... Yeah, get on it. Uh, meet me down there and uh, come say hi. And, uh, you know, we'll sit sit on the side sidelines and drink some coffee and talk shop if you want. Not sure if I'm going to do anything. It's always less pressure if you don't do anything. It's always a lot better, to be honest with you. Because then I don't have to worry about planning anything. But, you know, who knows? I will also be, let me look this up here. I know uh, the date, I'm going to say it's, let's take a guess. I think it's November 11th. I will be over at... Uh, the Music Expo 2017, uh, which is going to take place. Yep, yeah, I'm right. November 11th. See it? That's good. Good memory. Yeah. Coffee. That does it for you. At the SAE Expression College. That's in Emeryville, California. I will be there speaking or moderating. I'm not sure which. We're going to come up with something. I don't know what, what it is I'm going to do exactly, but I'll be there. So if you show up on November 11th uh, and you see me, say hello. Uh, what else? What else can I tell you? Yeah, I'm just back and that jet lag kicked my ass and it's good. It's good to be home. Um, really kind of, uh, reshape my thoughts a bit. And, you know, as you do with any of these things, you go to some event that really, I don't know, inspires you and you come back and you start to reevaluate everything, you know, reevaluate your workflow, the gear you use, um, your your space what you know whatever uh one thing that really has come out of it is that um i ordered from hook audio that's h o o k e hook i think it's here sorry i got to look it up h o o k e audio.com 
there it is, hookaudio.com. I ordered a pair of these, uh, basically it's a binaural set of microphones that you put in your ears and they have headphones as well. I think I mentioned it on 145. I'm not totally sure. Uh, anyhow, hookaudio.com, check it out. You basically put these things on your head and you can record binaural audio. And of course, you spend you know that much time with Chad Blake, you're going you're gonna to be a little inspired to record some binaural recording. Uh, he played us some stuff that was pretty uh, jaw-dropping. So it's a, it's a thing that uh, you put on and it goes to your phone records audio to your phone and encodes it. And I believe it encodes it at 24 bit 48 K. Although it does say, I think it technically uh, categorizes it as an MP3. I'm not really sure how that works. I'll let you know when I get it and I'll let you know how it works out. And I'll post some of the audio that I record with it. So you know how it works, but uh, Chad was singing its praises and said the fidelity was really great. And you know, when Chad Blake says that, then I tend to listen. So yeah, hookaudio.com. Be sure and look at it for yourself. Make your own judgments. Don't don't always listen to what I have to say and and just do it. You know that's that's not wise. Draw your own conclusions. Here's a side note. This has nothing to do with anything really. I went to an estate sale, and you know you know what estate sales are. That's when old people die, and it's a bunch of strangers going through their home, looking at all their stuff, all their junk. It's kind of depressing, really. And I swear I'm not going out like that. There's never going to be an estate sale for me. Uh, I'm going to make sure everything's spoken for, or I just don't have enough junk to uh, to give away. I say that now. We'll see what happens. Anyhow, um, I went to this estate sale and was getting ready to leave, but I got into this conversation with this older gentleman. He's probably in his 70s, and I said, is this your place? And he said, no, no, it's my my in-laws. They, they passed away, and I'm just helping facilitate sell all their junk. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not seeing much. And he said, well, you know, my uh, my father-in-law, he was really into old computers and electronics. And I said, oh, really? Oh, hmm. He said, yeah, you see these computer fans over here? And I said, yeah, I'm not really into computer fans. It's not my thing. And then he said, but, you know, we got this big old box of tubes over here. And I said, oh, really? Well, show, let's see the box of tubes. And he showed me one, and I was like, ooh, this is like from 1940 beautiful tube. I know I was just being a total geek. And anyways, I started to count the tubes up and I figured there's like 15 of these tubes in here, various types and some uh, vacuum tube capacitors, which I didn't even know existed and uh, all in fantastic shape. And I said, well, I'll take the whole box. Uh, how about 25 bucks? And he said, mm, how about 20? And I thought, okay, he's doing the reverse negotiation. Okay. I'll go for 20. Sure. So I gave him 20 bucks, walked away, and uh, yeah, I got some really cool tubes. I'll post uh, some pictures in the show notes if you like. If you're into that kind of thing, these things are gorgeous, amazing looking. And so I'm putting them up for sale to uh, friends. If, you know, if you're interested in these tubes, you know, you can get tubes all over online, so it's not that big of a deal. But uh, if you're interested, yeah, I'll put them up there. Send me a note if you say, hey, I saw this tube on your, you know, working glass audio. I want them, you know, or one or five or however many you want to send it to Matt at workingclassaudio.com. I'll send you a tube. We'll make a deal. Yeah. Tubes. Really, really amazing looking. I mean, just pieces of art in themselves. It makes me want to hold on to them all and kind of create some kind of, I don't know, tube lamp. I don't know. What am I going to do with these things? So yeah, tubes. 
Yeah, what can you say? Uh, just want to give a shout out, of course, to our friends over at GearSluts.com. Make sure you stop over at Audio Life, the sub form that we sponsor. And uh, while you're at it, if you're online and you're goofing off, go on over to UAudio.com and uh, make sure you check out uh, videos from our former guests, uh, Vance Powell and Jakir King. Uh, they both have stuff up there right now. And uh, yeah, super cool. Yeah, Vance is doing a thing with uh, this guy, Marty O'Reilly. And, uh, of course, Shakir is doing the uh, shootout with the vintage hardware versus the Apollo hardware. So very interesting, both of them. So uh, be sure and check that out. Yeah, Shakir and Vance over at Universal Audio. Uh, Uaudio.com, of course. That's it. So uh, let's get on with it here. Let's talk to Rene Coronado here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. We got some funny circumstances here because, uh, number one, I'm in France and you're in the U.S. Where are you located in the U.S.? I'm in Dallas. You're in Dallas. Okay. And not only that, but uh, let's see. So it's it's 11 o'clock my time here in France. What's the time there? It's 4 p.m. right now. I got the kiddo downstairs, just woke up from his nap on the iPad. So Ah, great. Okay. <laughs> we have an added element to this in that uh, a wasp has a very large wasp larger than I've ever seen in Texas, <laughs> New Mexico, or California, has flown into my room here in France, and uh, I'm keeping a loose watch on it, so uh, this will be interesting. It's great to have you on. Of course, our mutual friend, uh, Mark Kilborn, suggested that you come on. And So tell me about, let's, let's start with the thing that, one thing we definitely have in common, and that's podcasts. So tell me about Tonebenders. So Tonebenders is a sound designer's podcast. So me and Tim Muirhead, uh, man, it feels like it's probably been about five years ago at this point, um, started up this podcast. I threw out a, a tweet, you know, just kind of randomly about five years ago saying, Hey, is there any good sound design podcasts out there? Does anyone want to start one? And, uh, Tim jumped on, um, a guy named Dustin Camilleri jumped on. He's, he's since moved on from the podcast, but me and Tim have been doing it ever since. Uh, you know, we go about once a month, uh, and it's, it's all kinds of fun. It's a great excuse to, uh, talk to people that we wouldn't have an opportunity to talk to otherwise about this cool stuff that we do. So. It's fun. I enjoy it a lot. How often does your podcast come out? Uh, we go about once a month. Once a month. Okay. Yeah. That sounds so luxurious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, because Tim and I both have three-year-old kiddos um, and we started this five years ago, uh, our lives have changed dramatically since this thing started. And there was definitely a moment about two years ago where we kind of reached out to the community for help in editing this stuff because, you know, we have kind of a high production standard. You're doing a sound design podcast for audio people. Um, you know, you don't want to put out just a bunch of hash. <laughs> so um, we've definitely gotten some help in recent episodes from from just friends of the podcast doing a lot of editorial work on the front end to help us out um, just for, for the time perspective. Because it's, it's, you know, it's tough to fit it in a gap sometimes. You graduated with a, uh, an audio engineering degree. It's an AA, yeah, Associate of Applied Science in, in, yeah, in audio engineering. Where's South Plains College? It is, uh, it's in West Texas, so that's in Leveland. And Leveland's got about, I feel like it's got about two dozen people in it, but it's got the one building in it that's got the, the sound course, and it's just kind of this amazing little spot out in the middle of nowhere. Spectacular bluegrass musicians out there. You know, and when I went to school, you know, back in 97, you know, we were cutting on tape and cutting through a big old Amec Mozart board with just demons running all through it. You know, <laughs> we had no idea what was going on. And 
it was all kinds of fun, but you come out of a two-year school and you get humbled real quick when you go into the real world. It took me probably about five years of doing it all day, every day after school before I felt like I was really competent at what my job is. I see that you you worked uh, as an engineer at Dallas Audio Post. Yep. Still there. I'm a partner now. Oh my gosh. So that was yeah. 1999? Yeah. Wow. I had long hair. I had an earring in. I was some, you know, 21-year-old kid. And and here I am, still here. It's been a cool ride. I'm very, I recognize how unique that is and how fortunate I am to kind of have that in front of me. And I'm, I'm riding it as hard as I can. What does that entail in terms of your day-to-day? You know, every day is different. I'm the lead sound designer. So, you know, any of the big, heavy sound design tasks that come in broadly go through me. There's a skill set. There's a basic skill set that we all have to have, which is working with clients, uh, recording, editing voices, uh, music supervision, you know, and, you know, just and straight, you know, broadcast mixing for, you know, TV and radio and all that. And then beyond that, we break into our specialties. So I'm the lead sound designer. I'm the lead field recordist. One of my coworkers, Brad, is the lead composer and the and the music supervisor. So he's the one that knows all the musicians. And he's the, he's a spectacular musician himself. So he does all the music stuff. Kind of comes in and goes through him. Roy, who's the owner, is the is the lead mixer. So any you know big time mixes that come through go through him. He's also the the technical guy. So any technically complex setups, he he at least has his eyes on. And Steve's the new guy. So Steve is, um, Steve's been with us for about a year now. And he came out of school with a lot of skills and he's really, really good. He's going to, he's going to develop into his own place real fast. You started there in 1999. When did you graduate? 99. Oh, wow. <laughs> right out of school. It just doesn't happen anymore like that. Right. Uh, it didn't even happen like that then. Again, I, I recognize how straight up fortunate I was to have the opportunity, you know, and I, I wasn't the only one that applied for that gig, right? I mean, I did have to go out and get it and I had to I had to hold on to it all those years because, you know, there's schools cranking out kids looking for my job from the moment I got it. But with that said, I, I you know, it was it was unique for sure. You didn't have to invest in any equipment right up front, did you? Nope. Mm-mm. That's a fortunate position to be in, especially in your end of audio because location sound stuff and Post-production type stuff that you would use in your world tends to run on the expensive side. Yeah. I've been very fortunate to to work in a facility that's got excellent gear. Now, I did have to build... My first two weeks on the job was me with a soldering iron building every cable for the room that I was putting up. So I had to build and put up my own room <laughs> like right after I got hired. Okay. So you get Which hired way? and then, then they're like, okay, you got to build your own room? Pretty much. I mean, you know, Roy kind of knew what was all going to go into it, but he was working. And the whole reason I got hired on was because he needed help. So first thing I had to do was kind of put up my space. So he kind of dictated what it was going to be, but it was up to me to actually, you know, make all the cables and put it all together. So how many people were employed then and how many are employed there now? For the first several years that I was employed, it was just me and Roy. It was just two of us. Now there are four of us and there's there's a front office uh, production coordinator as well. What has taken place since 99 and how does it compare to now? You know, it's funny. There are some things that are exactly the same and there are some things that are dramatically different. We still have some clients that we had in 99. Uh, you know, for example, the Dallas Stars. We've had the Dallas Stars since they came into town. And they're still one of our biggest clients. I'm a huge hockey fan. And so I, you know, it's a great privilege for me to get to sit with the stars and, you know, do all of their big, you know, whiz bang open videos and basically almost all of their audio production. I'm listening. That was? I'm listening. <laughs> okay. Now he's in the lamp behind me. Okay. Let me pause for a second. I don't know if you can see the lamp. behind Sure. Me. Yeah. See that up there on the roof. 
Oh, I did see him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see him across the internet. Okay, just keep recording. And, uh, oh, oh boy, okay, stand by. Matt has stepped out into the room. He's ducked down. He's grabbed a weapon. He's circling slowly. Lights are on and off. It's like watching Poltergeist. Okay, so that went on for a little bit. Me chasing a wasp around the room and the wasp chasing me around the room. Renee and I decided to reschedule, and so, of course, we pick it up the next night. One dead wasp later and the discovery of a second wasp in the room, which eventually fell asleep as I fell asleep, and in the morning he flew out the window. So uh, here we are picking up the conversation the next night. Well, hey, welcome back. So for the listener, uh, Renee and I, of course, had to... uh, postpone our interview due to an infestation of a wasp in my room that uh, (laughs) came in via an open window here at Studio La Fabrique in France. Yeah, it was a little distracting because I had to, uh, I had to look over my shoulder the whole time. So we're back and uh, back. This is part two of a very, what started as a very short interview. What I'm curious about, uh, we touched on this, your day to day what is your day-to-day like now? Like, what does the workload consist of? So, you know, it, in the context of us, we all have a, a baseline kind of set of responsibilities and skill set that we each have to do, which is interfacing with clients, recording voiceovers, broadcast mixing, television and film, that kind of stuff. Once we kind of get beyond that, then each of us have our own specialties. So I'm the lead sound designer, the lead field recordist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll go out in the world and do sound effects recordings and any intense sound design stuff that comes through, comes through me. And then beyond that, um, we each have our own individual clients. So some of my specific clients are the Dallas Stars. Um, we'll tend to hand off the Texas Rangers. And there are some other kind of less well-known clients, some more corporate clients that you know each of us kind of goes through as well. So that's kind of the the broad piece of it, you know, we, we do all things audio, which is nice because it it lets me kind of dabble in a whole bunch of different disciplines within the broad spectrum of audio. And it's really fun to get to, uh, to do a a wide variety of things. How far does that extend? I mean, what, what are we talking about? Is it anything outside of the post production world? It, to some degree, we've been going into virtual reality. We've been doing 360 mixing, which has been fun. Um, again, I do field recording. So I'll go out and do shoots with, you know, vehicles and weapons and things like that, which is technically that's, you know, sound effects production does not post production. I'll do a lot of ADR. I'll do, you know, other things like that, which, you no, know, that falls into post, but that's kind of a specific, like if I were in LA, uh, you know, there are people in LA that all they do all day, every day is record fully, you know, and, and they're very, very specialized in the post world in the LA system. And so even within post, there's a broad, diverse range of jobs there to be done. And, you know, in a smaller market like Dallas, you really do have to be able to do a whole bunch of things with the level of competency. Where I've been out in France for this, um, what's called Mixed with the Masters seminar recently, uh, there's a little bit of discussion because of the person that we're that's kind of teaching all of us uh, his skill set, a guy named Chad Blake. We've been talking about binaural recording, field recording, location sound, mm-hmm. and incorporating some of those those recordings into music mixes in very creative and very yep. unique ways. And I'm curious if uh, you stockpile your own group of sounds captured in the field. 
Oh, absolutely. And you know, we have a sound effects library. So Echo Collective Effects comes out of Dallas Audio Post. And so we have, you know, a whole stack of things that we put out there. And kind of beyond that, as as you're talking about using binaural techniques, you know, I don't really have any binaural mics. I know Gordon Hempton, who's one of the top like uh, nature field recordists in the world. He goes out there with that with that Neumann uh, binaural head all the time. Oh, yeah. That's that's his tool of choice. I, I don't really have that. But what I will say is that the I've been playing a lot with the FB360 tools. So Facebook bought Two Big Ears, which was doing um, a lot of innovative work in the virtual reality in the 360 world, right? Okay. They basically took all those tools and made them free and put them out there. And it's labeled as FB360. So they work just as a, as a plugin set inside of Pro Tools or inside of Reaper. And so what you can do is... You can take objects in the sound field and pan them binaurally, essentially, and and put them in space that way. And so what I found is that I've really had a lot of fun with some of the sound designy stuff that we've been able to do, where you know there'll be like big CG kind of explosions that start in the front and move behind you, and you get to do all kinds of cool stuff with that. But what I'm finding is that when I use those tools to make that type of sound design, it still translates really well, even if I don't have, have the actual head tracking in place because it's doing the panning binaurally. So I really, I've been enjoying it. And if you're kind of dig, you know digging into that world right now with the music production space, check out the FB360 tools because that'll kind of give you more panning options than you have with just straight left and right for that kind of stuff. It's really fun. Well, that's a, that's a great tip. Um, I have one for you. If you're interested in getting into binaural recording more without spending five to seven thousand dollars on the Neumann head, there's right. a um, uh, Chad Blake turned me on to this thing called Hook Audio, H O O K E Audio, and for about two hundred and fifty bucks, including shipping in the U.S. and maybe slightly more in shipping uh, in Europe and, and elsewhere you have this set of headphones with microphones on the outside and chad turned me on to him because he said the uh the fidelity uh the of of them is better than a lot of stuff he's heard especially in that that price range because he's built his own binaural microphones for that he wears on his head plus he has a neumann head but he said the fidelity of these is fantastic and it's got one key feature to it that's may appeal to a lot of people is that it's Bluetooth, but it's through a special codec. It's transferring the audio as 24 bit 48 K to the phone, hmm. to your cell phone. It can also sync with video on your phone. And there's also a USB to mini Jack on it. So you can with a D to A converter, yeah, with a D to A converter in it, so it can actually go into a mic preamp, you know, of your choice. But it's a real inexpensive way to get into binaural audio. And he's he brought them out, and we were doing some tricks here at, at this seminar that I'm, I've been at. And so that's pretty yeah, cool. Uh, there's another solution kind of similar to that that a lot of the game audio folks use, which is uh, they're just clips, right? They just go over your ears, like kind of over the ear uh, workout headphones, but they've got clips in them where you can clip lav mics basically in your ear canals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can run a system that way also. There's some of the game audio folks run that type of setup. When they want to roll 24-bit 96K when they're out doing stealth recordings or they're out doing crowds and that type of stuff, uh, that's another solution that it's just whatever lobs that you have access to, you can, you can buy those little clips and they're not crazy expensive to 30 bucks or whatever. Oh, wow. Um, it's yeah. just, you got to get really, you know, decent lav mics to put in there. 
Yeah, people like the DPA lobs for that type of thing. Which which I assume are, are not cheap. Uh, you know, they're not the highest end of the DPA line. DPA, you know, obviously will go way up there, but the lobs are, you know, in the affordable range for people that are that are doing that type of thing. Okay. So I'm curious, do you feel self-conscious when you uh, go out to do field recording and you've got the gear and the stuff out and maybe a shotgun mic inside a Zeppelin or do you, do you ever feel like weird about that? No, you know, I've been doing it for so long that I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, you know, I've, I, I very actively go out into situations and record things. So for example, the, a couple of years ago, the Supreme court made gay marriage, the law of the land. And at the time I was living in a very gay part of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big parade that came right out my front door. Well, so I had my rig on me. So I, I threw some microphones up in a blimp and walked out there and just rolled through the whole parade and recorded the entire parade there. Oh, um, wow. Which was great. You know, people kind of treat you like whatever. If you act like you're supposed to be there, then you get, you know, you get treated that way. Shortly after that, uh, when Trump was campaigning, uh -huh. he came through Dallas. So I went to go record the counter protest there. Well, that was a much more precarious situation because all the open carry guys were out there with AR-15s and, you know, the Secret Service was everywhere and their helicopters flying around. There's an episode of Tone Benders where I put that whole thing out there. But even then, I was not hiding my microphones. I had the mics. I had a pair of Omnis up in a single blimp and I had that up on a, on a stick and I was up there kind of broadly doing that overtly, I guess, making those recordings. I had the gear in, my, in a backpack and I had the mics up on, on a stick. Shortly after that, I recorded police chief David Brown. I recorded his book and I was talking to him about that situation. What he told me was, A, you're entirely within your rights. Anytime you're on public property, you have the same rights as a photographer does. So you have a lot of rights as a field recordist to go out there and just record stuff. There's no expectation of privacy in public places. You're more worried about messing up the vibe sometimes if you show your mics. But broadly speaking, people kind of don't even pay attention to it. So I've recorded in a poker room where you can't have mics up. I just took my little Sony PCM D50 and put it on my leg and plugged my earphones in like I was and looked at my phone. Nobody looked at my recordings. Um, and I got a great, great poker room ambience that way. The other thing that Chief Brown told me was that if you're in a situation where there's a lot of media... You could just make up a credential and hang it on there and you look way more official and people don't mess with you. <laughs> wow. Interesting. But you, I'm sure you still get people coming up to you saying, what are you doing? What is that? Most people pretty much know what you're doing. Okay. The worst are, I guess, Red Wings fans. <laughs> Detroit <laughs> so I Red Wings? a whole bunch of hockey recordings. And, you know, I recorded an entire season of the stars, right? So I'd go to every game and I'd, and I'd set up in every different position. Uh, so, you know, I did an entire game from out in the hall. I did an entire game from the camera platform. I did an entire game from under the bleachers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one day I did it when we were playing the Red Wings. And man, I feel like one out of 10 Red Wings fans walked up to me and yelled into my microphone. <laughs> but outside of that, everyone's pretty much, they just roll with it, you know. Renee Coronado here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Yep. Let's do a sponsor break with uh, Audio-Technica as we usually do in the, in the midway point here. It's going to be back, of course, you know, singing the praises of my trusty BP-40 uh, that I have right here in front of me. I love the BP-4001s, the mics I was using when I was gone and on a trip. They're light, they sound good, and they, they uh, of course, uh, cut out a lot of extraneous noises that are around you. But 
man, it's good to be back on this mic. I think I sound better on it. I don't know what you think, but, uh, you know, the 4,000 ones do the job. This does the job even better for me. So if, if you're, of course, you know, out roaming and you need a solid mic, the 4001 is a good thing to go with. And if you're, you know, in a solid space with uh, in a studio-like environment, go with the BP40, you know. Don't worry about getting one of those other mics that everybody, you know, always tells you, well, you got to get the old standard, you know. Don't worry about that. Try something new. Check this out. Uh, I did. I really like it in a... You know, I don't know. How long have I been using this mic? Probably uh, two and a half years now. Something like that. Anyhow, great mic, and uh, I'm very fond of it, as you can tell. So don't plan on switching anytime soon. So there it is, the BP40. Uh, check it out at audio-technica.com and uh, judge for yourself. All right, let's get back into it with Renee Coronado here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Tone Benders podcast and... Uh, we we talked a little bit about that the night the uh, wasp invaded, and I think that uh, <laughs> you were looking for people to start a podcast because there one did not exist for your your area of audio. Sure, yeah, and and you put out one once a month. Can you kind of go back over that a little bit? Well, so the podcast is a really nice excuse for me to talk to people that I would not otherwise have access to. Um, about the things that we're doing and about the craft of it. And it's also a nice way for me to kind of put stuff out in the world and get feedback back. Uh, if I have thoughts about some things or if I have an opinion about something, uh, I will often try and put it in the podcast and kind of see what the response is coming back. Because my view of the world is that amateurs seek praise and professionals seek critique, right? So I want to continue to learn and continue to improve. And I really find the podcast as a really good vehicle for doing that type of thing. I also just kind of, you know, I used to blog um, a lot and I found podcasting to be better, a better medium to do things like shootouts and, you know, gear testing and also other kinds of just like technique testing and, and stuff like that. I find that I found myself putting a bunch of audio examples up in a blog where I was like, you know, once I started podcasting, I was like, oh, well, I could just do this, you know. So, for example, the, the episode I did on the Trump rally was way better suited in the, in the format of a podcast than it would have been in the format of a blog post. Because you can kind of tell the story with sound, I would assume. Exactly. Yeah, because in that episode, basically, I had my field recordings rolling the entire time, and I'm talking over it, saying, "Hey, this is what I was seeing. This is this is what happened here and what happened there." But you can also hear the entirety of the experience going on at the same time. Do you ever do, or I assume you spend a fair amount of time getting uh, recordings of nature or of you know sounds that might end up being used as something else than what they are. You know, absolutely. What are some examples of that? Uh, I guess a recent one was a library that we put out called Lockdown, which was a bunch of, you know, I, I needed um, stylized CGI style uh, me mechanical things locking together and clicking around and that type of stuff. And so I went out for a whole week and did a whole bunch of recordings of, you know, car doors and metal slams and little metal tools and big metal tools and all kinds of stuff like that. And you know, put a big library together. And then I designed it all out and I did a whole design thing where I ran them through a bunch of plugins and built a contact instrument and did all of that. And so in the end, a lot of that stuff gets bent and warped a little bit kind of beyond 
perception of what the initial sources were, especially when you start stacking a whole bunch of layers on top of one another. The one that I'm in progress of right now is called Aero Barrage. So, you know, whooshes of, you know, my belt and of, you know, a bead mat and other stuff like that kind of whooshing around all the impacts. One of the primary tools I used for arrows impacting things was I didn't actually shoot arrows at things. I took a hatchet and hit stuff with the hatchet instead. So I got more of a kind of a gritty close mic kind of texture to it that still felt kind of weighty and impactful. I was able to swing a hatchet faster than I would have been able to shoot an arrow. So stuff like that, you know, things that are in the ballpark, but things that that are still kind of getting the right texture and the right feel of what I'm looking for. Do you, I mean, obviously you work for a, a, you know, a post house. So is everything you do geared towards that or is there stuff of a personal nature that you like to capture just for your own use? There's, there's definitely personal stuff that I capture. So I got a three-year-old boy and I spent probably the first two and a half years of his life recording every sound he made. And I have a, just a beautiful document of him going from a baby to coming to speech. That is one of my most prized possessions at this point. Um, there are other things. There are other personal, there are things that cross the line. You know, we had a basset hound named Buttercup for a long time and she was a very vocal dog. And she is basically part of every single creature design I ever put out there because she just made all kinds of crazy noises. And, I, you know, she had her routines too. Like she would wake up in the morning and she would go stand at a certain part of the bed and shake her head open, you know, because she was a basset down. So she'd just go flap her lips real hard and she did it every morning. And so, you know, one week I was like, well, I'm just going to put the mic up and <laughs> I'll just roll every time she gets up. And so I got a whole week of her flapping her head around. Uh, stuff like that, you know, but that's stuff that is useful for work, but it is personal to me, you know, personal parts of my library that are mine that I don't sell to other people. So you probably, I mean, you capture a lot of audio. So yeah. talk to me about finding the time to edit that, put post-production work into that. So it's ready for either yourself or the post house. And also talk to me about storing it and keeping it safe. So the process is it, when I record stuff, it comes in, usually it goes into a Pro Tools session or it'll go into RX. Uh, I'll, I'll go through a, an edit pass. And to some degree, that first step kind of depends on what my final intention is going to be. If it's just going from my library, I might, I'll, I'll do things like I'll leave the slates on it and I'll leave it nice and loose. If I'm going to put it into a production library that I'm going to sell, I'll, I'll chop it a lot more tightly and I'll, I'll chop it kind of a little bit more into groups and categories of things. So sometimes I'll roll a long take of whatever the performance is that I'm doing and then I'll go through and cut everything and then I'll go through and resort it into small, medium and large, things like that. Again, if it's for my own personal stuff, I won't go through that much time. I'll prefer to have my own personal stuff be a lot more loose so that I can dig around in it, but it's not like I'm presenting those files out to the sound design world as a whole. So you go through, you chop it, you edit it, and then it goes into SoundMiner. And then in SoundMiner, I go real, real heavy with my metadata because you know the philosophy that I have and that a lot of people have is if you've recorded something and then you can't find it later, you kind of didn't record it. Or it's about the same as if you didn't record it. So I spend a lot of time and effort getting the metadata in such a spot to where I can go find these things. Over the course of your career, as you're sound designing, you go through your memory and you're like, you know, I remember I went and recorded those helicopters that one day. I bet I could take one of those things and slow it down. So you're going more through your memory banks than you are through the actual metadata sometimes. But if you do enough work on the front end with the metadata, you will allow yourself to have happy accidents when you're searching for textures and things like that. So I make sure to give not only 
only a literal description of what it is that I recorded, but also a textural description of what I recorded so that as I'm looking for textures when I'm sound designing, I can go find stuff that uh, I might not have necessarily been specifically thinking of. Talk to me about keeping it, keeping it all safe. I mean, uh, how do you protect the, the enormous amount of audio that you come up with? Once things get edited, they get put onto our sound effects server. Our sound effects server gets backed up um, not only to a separate drive that clones it out. So the sound effects server sits on like a RAID 6, and that gets back down to another RAID 6. Also, quarterly, I'll back it up to tape. And then every so often, I will take my own personal hard drive and go run this stuff back to my house. So if we get hit with a missile, I've still got my stuff. When you say back up to tape, just to clarify, you know, you're talking like um, AIT or... LTO, yeah. L- okay, D- LTO. Digital audio tapes, about, they're about a terabyte per tape. Okay. Talk to me about SoundMiner, because I think um, a lot of my listeners don't know what SoundMiner is. Can you talk about that? Sure. SoundMiner is a databasing software that that you can put sound effects libraries into. You know, it's not the only one out there. Basehead is another one that does that. Reaper has an internal um, sound effects database that it can do. A Pro Tools Digibase kind of also does that, right? I like SoundMiner because it's got a whole bunch of of categories and a whole bunch of kind of places for me to label things. Mm-hmm. It, it's just deeper in that sense than the other solutions. So once you kind of put all your metadata on it and you do a search inside of SoundMiner, it pulls all the sounds up. And then from there, you can do things like very speed them around. You can just spot in per, you know parts and pieces of an individual sound. So you put your cursor in your Pro Tools timeline, you kick over to SoundMiner, find the sound, hit one key, and it dumps that sound into your Pro Tools timeline with whatever effects or anything else you want on it. So for sound design, that's super, super useful for basically once your metadata is in place, kind of at the speed of thought, you're throwing sounds into your timeline. It's expensive though, isn't it? Sound minor. Yeah, the, the pro version is pricey. And, and the pro version is the one that you really want to use, especially if you're building your own libraries, because that's the only one where you can put your own metadata on it. The other ones don't allow you to actually edit the metadata. And to me, that's the most important part of building the library is putting your own tag on the metadata. Even when I buy external libraries, when I buy other people's libraries, I'll go through them and I'll start adding my own keywords of my own kind of you know secret words that I use to go find certain types of sounds um, in the metadata, even if it's not stuff that I personally recorded. Let's say for the, the typical recording engineer who works on music, but has an interest in sound design and Mm-hmm. you know, uh, field recording and stuff like that. What would be a good lower priced solution to do that, knowing that they're not necessarily doing it for a living, but they but they carry a great interest and, and carry a great passion for sound design and field capture? Yeah. I mean, the most universal format is the B-Wave header. So, you know, the, the broad the broadcast wave format has a metadata header in it. And there are a lot of different free programs or very inexpensive programs that you can use to edit that metadata. And when I release libraries, I make sure I copy my description field down to the B-Wave header. I know Wave Agent will deal with that. I know, I think Reaper will allow you to edit the B-Wave header. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Digibase inside of Pro Tools will allow you to do it as well. So if you've got Pro Tools, you can do it there. Oh, that's good to know. It's cumbersome there. It's not as easy. <clears throat> Uh, you know, the, a lot of what you're paying for with some of the other libraries like Basehead or, and SoundMiner is uh, ergonomics and, and the ability to do things like take a folder of files and dump the metadata out into a text file and edit the text file and then sh- you know, suck it back in and burn it to the actual files. Well, talk to me a, a bit about uh, work-life balance. You know, you're, you're dad, so um, tell me about how, yeah. how you make that all work. You know, again, I'm, I'm very lucky I'm in a very unique situation with the specific company I'm at in that 
we go to work at eight and we come home around five thirty or six and that's, and we don't work weekends. And that's true, probably 85 to 90% of the year. If I were in LA, those guys work late. Those folks work late. They work, they work long hours and they're very specialized. If you're in New York, the people over there, they work late, they work long hours. Some of that is the, the nature of that is, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a multi hundred million dollar film out there with a hard deadline and, you know, a room full of producers that want it to sound a certain way, you're going to work late. That's just what it is. I'm not personally working on those types of projects. A lot of the projects I'm working on, I, I have the ability to kind of triage my day as I walk in. I'll walk in, I'll say, all right, I've got to get this, 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 and this done. And uh, I'll have the ability to kind of set my day and get done what I need to get done um, and go home at a reasonable hour. And now you're a partner at your at, at your place. Yes. You didn't start out that way. Now, when you're a partner, obviously your responsibilities change greatly. I assume that you all pay yourself a salary. Yes. Okay. And does a place like yours have lean times or is it just a year round thing? You know, we work really hard to have a very diverse client base. And so there are many of our clients that are very cyclical. And, you know, the example again would be sports stuff, right? Hockey and, and baseball have their own cycles. There are other stuff like corporate stuff that kind of comes through on its own tempo. And so what we tend to have is, especially over the last several years, if you have a broad enough client base, the cycles overlap enough to where it's just kind of a steady burn all year long. We slow down a little bit in the summer because there's a lot of productions that kind of kick up in the fall. But in a broad sense, we're pretty steady. The other unique thing about us is about 60% of our client base is not in town. So we have a lot of clients out in DC. We have a lot of clients in New York. We have a lot of clients in LA. And so uh, and a lot of clients also kind of broadly scattered throughout the country. And mm -hmm. so because we're our client base is geographically diverse, that also kind of helps kind of spread things out with regards to the individual business cycles of the individual clients. Talk to me about uh, our, our differences that in that I mostly work on music and, and you don't. So how how does that function in your world? So the way that we interface with music, the way that we interact with music is a little bit different than people that are primarily dealing with artists and dealing with bands. Mm -hmm. You know, your business model is going to be your artist or your band is going to have a label um, or they'll self-finance and they'll come to you and they'll record and they'll get their album done and they'll, or they'll do mastering and then they're, and then they're out the door. What we do, broadly speaking, is we do a lot of music supervision. So we're dealing with libraries, we're dealing with the artists that we know, et cetera, et cetera, getting music placed on things like corporate videos or whatever, um, whatever comes in the door that needs music. We do a lot of the determination of what music goes where. Mm -hmm. We also produce music internally for that specific purpose. So, uh -huh. you know, we will write music that is the intention of that music is to get it placed and get it licensed. It's not to release it to the broader public. And so what that means is that you're writing, you know, a specific kind of music. You're writing music without vocals. You're writing music with the intent of it telling a story and a specific kind of story in a broad sense, because we know who our clients are. So we know what kind of stories to tell them musically. You know, Brad is our is our main music guy. And so as a producer, he will sit there and, you know, select instrumentation, play instruments a certain way, bring in other musicians, uh, you know, you know, bring in live drums and that type of thing to to get the production value up where it needs to be. But producing it with an end, with a separate end goal in mind, which is more about getting it placed against picture than it is about getting it released and consumed by the general public. Gotcha. 
That's interesting. Now, how, how much music work do you all do? Brad's busy all year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, I, we all have a basic music supervision type role that we have to play with all of our clients. But Brad is the lead guy. If there's something that's particularly tricky or particularly high requirement, it goes through Brad because Brad's got deeper hooks in the, in the entire scene than the rest of us do. And that's just relationships you build up over time. You guys have a lot going on. The other big thing that we do that music doesn't really touch is voice production. So we'll do a lot of voiceover, but we'll also do a lot of voice acting type things. So, for example, video games, uh, toys, those types of things, all those people need voice actors, e-learning, interface devices, those types of things. A lot of those increasingly have voice coming back. We've been doing language stuff for kids. It's a ton, a ton of voice recording, audiobook recording. I spent all last week doing an audiobook. And sometimes when you're dealing with actors, that's different than when you're dealing with, say, celebrities, right? So, you know, I recorded... George W. Bush's book. And dealing with him is di different than dealing with an actor that's throwing 40 voices at me, like which is what I had last week. And so the, the requirements of doing really, really high-end voice production, uh, spoken word, you know, voiceover type production are very, very different than, say, vocalist recordings, right? Because with the vocalist, you're going for vibe, you know, you're you're running through a specific, you know, you're running through gear that's kind of doing compression and EQ, and you're trying to get a certain thing back to your your artist's headphones and get them with a certain type of feel and a certain vibe so they can give you a certain performance. Whereas with, you know, say audiobooks or voiceover, you're going a lot flatter, a lot cleaner, and you're going for a lot longer period of time. You know, I'll have them in there for seven hours sometimes. So I've got to be able to set them up to where they can run all day. So it's a, it's a very different vibe. Uh, you know, I'm worried about stomach noise, you know? <laughs> stomach noise, mouth noises. Yeah. Whereas, you know, with a singer, you're not worried about stomach noise. Digestive noises. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you recorded George W. Bush's book with George W. Bush? Two of his books. I recorded his wife's book. And I've recorded, you know, a, a ton of books. I did T.D. Jakes. I did uh, Taya Kyle, um, who is Chris Kyle's wife, who Chris Kyle was the American sniper. Uh, so his wife came in and she recorded her book. I did um, Tiger Woods' old coach. I did his book. So I did, you know, we have a, a fair amount of books that have the budget that come to us are the, of the celebrity biography type. And so we're the place in town to, to basically get that type of work done. Well, so when that happens, I mean, when an ex-U.S. president comes in, they've got Secret Service protection, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And how, yeah. I mean, can you say how many Secret Service agents come in and do you have to accommodate them? And We do have to accommodate the Secret Service. The interesting thing about the Secret Service is people forget, I guess, in a lot of places where they go, people don't accommodate them. And so, you know, they don't have, you know, we treat, we try and treat the Secret Service well. So we make sure they know where the bathrooms are. We make sure they have water and food and we treat them like human beings. And they totally appreciate that because they don't get that every time they go someplace. But, you know, they do their thing. You know, they don't show you, but you just know that they're armed to the teeth. You know, they've got, <laughs> they've got the little thing in the ear and they're talking to each other. They, what they'll do is they'll come in in advance and they'll sweep the whole place. They'll make sure they know exactly where the ex exits are. They'll make sure they know exactly the routes to the place where the person is going to be is. Um, you know, they, they know all the routes in and out of whatever building they're going to. And, you know, they, they have their job pretty much on lockdown. They have, a, you know, some quirky little rules too. Like they can't, you know, typically those, you know, a president's going to come in and, you know, they're a politician. They know what's up. So they're going to take your picture with you and all that kind of stuff. Well, the Secret Service can't hold your phone because they can't, they can't obscure their eyes. 
So you have to hold your phone, you have to hand your phone to somebody else. So there's or a you, bunch of little interesting things like that with them. Or you can do a selfie, right? Yeah, you can do a selfie too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you can't, you can't preoccupy this, the agent. That's right. Yeah. They're, they're very serious about what they're doing. What a fascinating world. And then I guess there's some people who just have personal security. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the bigger names that have come through, the only ones that have had security have been presidents, I guess. I mean, we had Ozzy come through and Ozzy's whole entourage was one little British guy. <laughs> you know? Ozzy is an Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah. Yeah. He was doing a voiceover for uh, some cartoon. You know, he was in town on his tour. And so, you know, he needed to go record this uh, this episode for this show for Nickelodeon. Um, while he was in town. So he came in with one other guy and he's super, super cool guy. Ozzy was just very giving uh, of of his time and of, of his talents. He was very, very cool person to be around, I thought. And it was just interesting because it's like, there are certain people that when they walk in, they introduce themselves to you, right? Like, um, you know, I recorded Brett Hull, who in Dallas, Brett Hull was the guy that scored the Stanley Cup winning goal in 99 for the Stars. And, you know, so he walks in and says, hi, I'm Brett Hull. And I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> you know, um, the two people that don't introduce themselves to you or, or that never introduced themselves to me was George Bush and Ozzy Osbourne. Because when they, no matter what room they walk into, they know damn well you know who they are. So, <laughs> so they just say hi. <laughs> Wow, what a fascinating world that that you you operate in there at this one place. So, if you could um, just tell us what's uh, what's the website that we can visit the post production place at? Sure, DallasAudioPost.com. Okay, and uh, do you have a personal website that? Uh... Uh, you know, people ask for my personal website. I give them the podcast website at this point. So, ToneBendersPodcast.com. Right. So, for the listeners, I encourage you to go check out ToneBenders and uh, subscribe to to Renee's podcast and, uh, and check it out. So you can kind of compliment yourself with a little working class audio, a little tone benders. Yeah, man. So, uh, well, Renee, thank you so much, man. I, I sorry about the thing with the wasp coming into the room. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I felt so bad. They were like, did you, did you talk to your guy in Dallas? I said, no, no, no. There was a wasp in the room. And then as it turns out, there were two wasps <laughs> in the room. So I, I spent the evening, uh, challenged by that. So so, uh, well, thanks for, thanks for being on the podcast and, and taking the time to talk with me. And, uh, it's a pleasure meeting you. I, I hope to meet you in person someday. Yeah, absolutely. Next time you're in Texas, give me a call. I will do that. All right, man. Take care. Renee Coronado here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Yep. Great to have Renee on and learn about his world. We are at a time. So of course we, uh, I got to jump into it. We got to start thinking everybody and we got to think them right now. We got to start, of course, with our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale. Chuck Smith and Cole Williams and our sponsors, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, Audio-Technica, and Gearsluts.com. Holy moly, I said that fast. Yeah, now I have a little bit of extra time, so I'd like to thank you for listening, and I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. 
many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 